Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. We've been thinking about addressing climate change from a medical perspective, so let's take a deep breath and consider the impact on respiratory health. And helping me navigate these airways on the airwaves is a brilliant pulmonary physician and epidemiologist, Dr. Jonathan Samet, and I'm delighted to tell you that he spells Jonathan the same way I do, so I clearly like him already. Dr. Samet is Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health in Aurora, Colorado in the United States, and he's, he's a professor of epidemiology, also working in environmental and occupational health. He's an impressive portfolio of research focused on the health risks of inhaled pollutants, analyzing the occurrence and causes of cancer and respiratory diseases, and investigating the risks of active and passive smoking. And having grown up with a father who smoked, uh, that really caught my attention. Having served and chaired numerous committees for the National Research Council and National Academy of Medicine, including the Board on Environmental Studies and Toxicology, I doubt there are many others who could help me understand this critical topic. In a career that now spans several decades, Dr. Samet has driven initiatives in global health focusing on tobacco control, air pollution, and chronic disease prevention. He's received multiple awards for his outstanding contributions, including from prestigious institutions such as the Harvard School of Public Health and the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Dr. Samet's been elected to the National Academy of Medicine He's even met with royalty, receiving the 2004 Prince Mahidol Award for Global Health from the King of Thailand. Dr. Samet describes himself as a typical Colorado um, person. He's, he's, he's passionate about the outdoors and spends his time um, hiking, cycling, and climbing mountains. And in fact, he was telling me that his son is a very prominent mountaineer and drags him up uh, to extreme peaks. So, from one Dr. Jonathan to another, welcome to the distinguished Dr. Jonathan Summit, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jonathan, and great to be uh, here with you today. Well, I, I, like I said, I'm looking forward to being educated on a lot of this stuff. Um, and having recently recovered from COVID, it's inevitable I'm going to ask you about that because, um, in fact, why not start with that? I, I, you know, I'm still several, I'm several months out. I still have quite a marked degree of breathlessness. What are you seeing in this space? Well, we're quite concerned about the uh, so-called long COVID. Um, in fact, uh, since the pandemic started, my team here has been working closely with the state on modeling the epidemic. And now we've turned to what is the uh, long-term disease burden going to be? trying to understand just how many folks there may be like you who have uh, persistent uh, symptoms. And, and certainly breathlessness is one. Uh, COVID-19 damages the lungs, and we need to know how long that damage may persist. Mm. Well, more power to your pencil. It needs to be resolved for someone who is running several kilometers a day beforehand and now struggles to walk several hundred meters without puffing. It's uh, I want it resolved. So let's do, let's do things in reverse order, if you will, and start with a sort of summary. You've committed much of your professional life to this, to this topic. How serious is the current and future risk to respiratory health due to environmental pollutants? Well, it's a big risk. It gets 
bigger globally. Uh, we have some successes to, to report, so I don't want to say everything is uh, glum, but certainly over now four decades of my career, uh, we've seen air pollution become a far better understood problem. We understand better its global extent, and we certainly have captured just what a big threat it is. In, in the United Kingdom, of course, the London fog of 1952 was a wake-up call. 10 to 20,000 people died in excess over probably several weeks. We don't see anything so dramatic anymore, but we have places like Delhi or Beijing at times where levels may approach those, but it's really the ongoing fact that we're just not as a, as a world living in uh, air as healthy as it should be. You know, you mentioned about sort of awareness. Uh, I've, I've done my bit to try and raise awareness about existential threats like COVID, like uh, climate change. And I really struggle to understand the deniers uh, who are slowly but surely disappearing in the climate issue. I, I know we haven't discussed this previously, but how do you deal with the people who deny that this is real? Yeah, I, I have to say across my career, I've dealt with a lot of deniers. And, you know, let's start with the tobacco industry, which really, I hate to give them credit for anything, but pioneered the creation of doubt. And certainly those tactics spread to climate change. In fact, it's remarkable that some of the same people who said secondhand smoke was not a hazard also said that climate change did not exist. You know, we, we try and counter deniers with evidence. And, and now we've entered into this new world of, quote, alternative facts, uh, close quote. And we have um, just uh, entered a world where disinformation, which is deliberately delivering wrong information, misinformation, spread quickly. So I, I think the challenges are really ever greater. And all I try and do is, whenever possible, take that opportunity to say, here's what we really know. Yeah. And, and again, the people who are the deniers, that they seem to utilize the same methodology, which is to assume that anyone who says something contrarian to their worldview must be in the pay of someone. How do you undermine that? Well, let, let's circle back and come on to that. I, I presume, look, things have worsened. Pollution has definitely worsened during our lifetimes. And it's, it's real, even to the most delusional, it must appear real. Can humans stop and reverse the damage to the environment from a pollution perspective? So first, I have to say, let's hope so. That's not the scientific answer, but let's hope so. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I think the problem is that fossil fuel combustion is ingrained into the way we live, whether it's uh, for power generation for transportation, goods movement, and then in much of the world, uh, use of biomass fuels for cooking and space heating. We need a transition to sustainable uh, approaches for generating energy. We have wind, we have solar, presumably we're gonna have more possibilities. We're not making that transition fast enough. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons for that. Of, of course, some of it is getting the technology to be 
cheap enough and widely available. We're certainly making progress with solar. And then there are the vested interests that want to keep selling fossil fuels, of course, that slow progress through their um, ability to create doubt uh, and also through their political clout. Yeah, and of course, any of these discussions, you just have to follow the follow the flow of money and the you know it'll become apparent why the flow of oil dictates or flow of gas dictates the discussion um so let's assume that we that we don't wake up and smell the roses or the pollution what are the direct um impacts that clinicians are going to experience in their practice lung cancer for example as i say my my dad was a smoker and he died with lung cancer and many other smoking-related diseases, but what 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 are clinicians going to start to see that they go, hang on a second, something's happening? Are they going to see lots more lung cancer? Well, if we continue to pollute the air with carcinogens, that's certainly a possibility. I think the um, where clinicians might take note if we see a rise is in those who don't smoke, and uh, will be placed at greater risk by inhaling. Um, you know, carcinogens that are in outdoor air and, of course, wander into homes and are breathed in uh, indoors. So that's, I think, a way that with lung cancer, clinicians might um, become aware of that shift. Um, Certainly there are other ways um, as well, particularly for, you know, those with chronic lung disease, asthma and COPD in particular, who uh, will more often encounter concentrations that make them worse, that exacerbate their underlying disease. So are, are the numbers going up, um, the, the numbers of patients presenting with uh, COPD? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, the numbers of people with COPD have gone up. Uh, death rates for COPD have not dropped like some other smoking-caused diseases, which is... Um, been a bit hard to um, hard to ex- explain. I think where I think the reason I'm saying the hesitating a little bit and this is hard to sort out is that there are so many things that contribute to people with COPD or asthma being worse that it's hard to single out one thing or another. We certainly know from careful epidemiological studies that air pollution can cause uh, exacerbations or, you know, depress the lung function of somebody with asthma. So it's coming all the time. I think it's just hard. There's no sort of easy sentinel here that says, yep, that's somebody who's been affected by, you know, air pollution as opposed to allergens, as opposed to a virus. Yeah, right. well, good point. Maybe we need better, better systems of monitoring so that we can spot this. I guess it's like when, you know, the early days of HIV, it took a while for people to realize that there was something funny going on. Not, you know, not funny, ha-ha, that's for sure. Yeah, right, for sure. So how do you see climate change affecting the practice for respiratory clinicians in the future? And then I guess, you know, by extension, all doctors. I think that um, there are a couple of ways, particularly for the uh, pulmonary respiratory Physicians, one, you know, we anticipate that there'll be some changes and shifts in the uh, allergens that people are exposed to, possibility. And, you know, again, there are climate scientists and plant scientists teaming up on this kind of work. Changes in uh, vegetation with 
new allergens appearing, allergen seasons becoming longer, perhaps more potent um, allergens. So this is one route by which climate change may feed directly uh, and affect um, the health of uh, those with lung disease. And in fact, you know, who um, seen by uh, respiratory physicians or, or general practitioners and pediatricians for that matter. Uh, certainly, uh, we may see changes in vector-borne diseases because of changes in vectors. And, um, you know, mosquito populations coming into uh, Europe, the Aedes aegypti, for example, that uh, carries some diseases uh, that so that we may see emerging infection, infections in areas where we would not uh, anticipate uh, them. Chikungunya, a viral disease, is one that's talked about in that way. So we're, we're setting ourselves up for a changed world around what we breathe in. I think a changed world around the disease vectors that may be um, out there and, you know, the possibility of surprises. I mean, I, I don't relate our current COVID-19 pandemic directly to uh, climate change. But I, I think uh, changing vector patterns uh, could certainly uh, set us up for uh, unexpected uh, pandemics that reach areas that otherwise uh, might have been uh, not, not under threat. So years ago, uh, John, I was... Uh, I had the great good fortune to visit uh, far north Queensland, Cairns, and um, I was doing a, um, a mini sabbatical there. Then I went back recently when a friend um, and his family moved there and sitting and having a cocktail at dusk, um, the hillsides that I remembered being sheathed in rainforest were now sheathed in homes. And at dusk, the um, the bats come out and the flying foxes and they were swooping all over where we were sitting and having a cocktail and of course depositing guano in our area and I was thinking are we realizing that as we change environments there are unforeseen consequences and maybe that's something that the medical profession needs to be educating people about you know right uh, you know and certainly some folks have taken that on I mean I I will um single out one of my colleagues here uh, in Colorado, Jay Lemery, who's an emergency room physician who has really taken up the challenge of explaining climate change and its uh, clinical consequences to docs. He has a book out called Enviromedics, and he's edited several others, and he's championed, uh, championed this. And I, I, I think for many reasons, health professionals need to understand climate change. Some of the direct consequences that we've talked about, but I think more, perhaps more importantly, we need to be, you know, purveyors of the truth about uh, climate change and health and uh, able to speak whether to patients or to policymakers uh, saying, look, we do need to take uh, the consequences of climate change seriously. So I think there's a, there are important roles for uh, the healthcare professionals, physicians and particular because, you know, we're still a trusted group um, in telling the truth uh, to those who need to hear it. Well, let's pull on that thread a little bit. Uh, I've always believed that um, one changes behaviors by changing beliefs. 
So what are some of the focal points for research and what do experts like you need to do to encourage governments uh, to take this seriously and individuals to change their practice? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's no simple answer uh, to that. And, you know, there has to be a real collective um, effort here. I think we have to bring understanding of climate change uh, into curricula early. I mean, you know, going back through, you know, kindergarten and up. Uh, We're talking here about... uh, the role of climate change in our curricula. We offer uh, for medical students uh, a, a short course. I've been uh, co-leading a task force for the Association of Schools and Programs in Public Health, a U.S. organization, on what we should be doing as institutions, whether it's in education, advocacy, or research. So I, I think we need a far-reaching effort. Um, and, you know, there's probably a few particulars that really need attention, the rapid spread of misinformation, the ability of uh, people to disseminate um, information just not correct rapidly. And I I think uh, in many countries, and I'll single out the United States, there's certainly no reason that climate change should become an issue that one or another party believes in or doesn't believe in. So, you know, we have a a big problem. I mean, science did not used to be so politicized. And those of us who do science, I need really have to step into the fray here and uh, try and decouple science from politics by telling the truth. It's always a good start. We should put the name of that book in the show notes. And one I'd like to throw out there is a great book called Science Left Behind. And then another called Merchants of Doubt. Which, which talks about, uh, well, the tobacco industry for one. So you've done a lot of research around particulate matter, uh, ozone, and then we live at a, at a time where people are marketing all sorts of things to improve air quality in the home. Can you talk a little bit about whether people should be, you know, purifying their air in their home? And also, um, I know it's a bit of a ragtag question, as we're talking about homes, tell me a little bit, of, or tell our listeners a little bit about radon. Let's start with um, what drives air quality in a home. I mean, it's really, it's really simple. It's what kind of pollutants are coming into the air from indoor sources, tobacco smoke being a terribly potent one, uh, a gas stove that releases nitrogen dioxide, uh, hobbies, you know, chemicals that people keep in their kitchens or their garages. Uh, So we have sources, and we have outdoor pollutants coming in the homes, of course. And particles come in quite freely, um, ozone less so, because it's a very sort of reactive gas and gets absorbed onto things. And then the other big factor is how much fresh air comes into the home. Uh, Then you can throw onto that um, whether you can clean the air in your home. And of course, as you say, Uh, And there are people who would like us to buy devices that clean the air. They can be helpful, uh, I think, in the right circumstances and the right device. So people who want to get an air cleaner have to make sure that it has enough capacity to clean the amount of air, say, in a room. Uh, If they're worried about gases, gaseous pollutants, uh, then they need one that cleans up gases as well as 
particles, and those typically have some sort of uh, filter, often made of uh, charcoal. I want to talk about sort of an extreme situation here. I chaired a group at the National Academies of Sciences for about five years, and our task was to advise the U.S. State Department on what to tell its employees about air pollution, say those who are in some of these very high pollution communities, uh, places like, say, Delhi or uh, Beijing, and, you know, what, what should they do? And the advice was, one, you have to know how high the air pollution is. And most major areas now have air pollution monitors, particularly for particles, and perhaps a warning system. People can now buy a reasonably cheap and reasonably accurate uh, particle monitor should they want to. So they can help themselves, purple air, for example. And, you know, in these really high pollution situations, the, the approach is to sort of keep the outdoor air from coming in and clean the indoor air. So that can be done. So that's, that's an extreme. Um, and then at the other end, I would say for those who are particularly concerned or, or susceptible, perhaps because of asthma, that they think about trying to clean the air, perhaps in some of their, um, in, in part of their home. Yeah. So... Radon is a, an interesting story. So, you know, just as background for everyone, radon is naturally occurring. There's no radon industry that makes it. It's a gas, it's an inert gas, and it comes out of the soil. It's part of the decay of uranium. And it can diffuse right into the air of a home uh, from a basement underneath or through cracks in a foundation. And if there's enough of a natural source, the concentrations can get pretty high. It's known to be a carcinogen. Uh, thousands of miners of uranium and other ores have died worldwide uh, because radon is, is a carcinogen. And, you know, it's, uh, it's somewhat unique. It's easy to detect and measure its concentration. And we have guidelines. The UK has one, the US has one, WHO has a guideline for indoor concentration. So people can measure it. If it's too high, they can do something about it. There are ways to, to lower it. So it's an example of a controllable, measurable carcinogen that people can actually take action on. And, um, and uh, if they have a high level, take care of it. So I, I think it's an example of one carcinogen we know and understand very well, and that we can about one we can do something about. And some there's some controversy still. Nothing is ever non-controversial, perhaps, but uh, I think it's uh, well established. And uh, people who live in areas where radon's a problem should certainly find out what is in the air of their home. Yeah, I you know some changes over here in the UK. I was in a board meeting recently, and in the centre of the board meeting table, they had a particulate matter meter, and uh, um, when it reached a certain level, they said, "Okay, we're opening all the doors and windows." And there's now certain parts of the UK you can't have a log fire in your home, and gas stoves are being discouraged, and people are moving to electric stoves. I fascinating absolutely yeah no it's sensible i mean i did a lot of work a long time ago on the gas stove issue and especially those that had a pilot light that continuously burned you probably remember those 
Yeah, they were uh, an ongoing source of indoor air pollution, of oxides of nitrogen, which are sort of the same thing that come out of the tailpipes of uh, motor vehicles. So, yeah, that was a remarkable finding that some homes had very high concentration. Big issue for me. I love to cook and uh, I've always preferred cooking on a gas stove. I guess I'll have to change my practice. Well, yeah, get some pretty good peaks during uh, cooking, for example, frying, which also generates lots of small particles. Don't stop cooking. Just uh, be aware. No, I don't, I don't fry, but yeah, there we go. So uh, serving as the dean at the Colorado School of Public Health, what would you say your proudest achievements uh, have been during that time? And what do you want to achieve going forwards? Sure, sure. Well, I, I have to divide my time into being dean as pre-COVID and COVID. And uh, during the, the COVID time, I'm really proud of the contributions we've made to the state. About you know day two into our first lockdown here, closed down in uh, Colorado, we set up a modeling group to look at what would happen with the pandemic in Colorado. And since then, I've worked closely with the governor's office and our state, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to provide some guidance on what's happening with the pandemic. Our students have been doing contact tracing. We've been out trying to understand why people are getting vaccinated. So I'm really proud of the contributions our school has made and helping to reduce the burden from COVID in the state. Uh, we are the only school of public health in the state in the Rocky Mountain region. So we have, I think, an important responsibility for education uh, and for providing service and for doing research that's relevant. And during my time as dean, I think we've, you know, continued to do an ever, have an ever more important role in the uh, region. And I'm uh, really quite proud of those contributions. I mean, we reach nationally and internationally uh, as well. But, you know, I think we're doing what a state school of public health should do. Well, wonderful. Um, and, you know, you I didn't mention it in, in my opener, but you've got international experience, right, outside the United States. And you've also worked in very different environments. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm not going to make any political comment, but I always love Colorado, not just because I have friends there, I like to ski, I love the scenery, but it's also an intellectually tolerant place, should we say. But you've worked in other places in the United States. Which places stuck out in your mind as to how they influenced you and or gave you great experience? Well, you know, I have to say there's always public health problems everywhere. And the Experiences were so different. I mean, I think, as you know, I started my career in the state of New Mexico, which when I got there was a small state, maybe 1.2 million people uh, with visible public health problems. Those days I was um, seeing patients and the connections between seeing someone, a uranium miner with lung cancer, and then going to do a study in the uranium mines. You know, it made the connections very clear. I will say I did my internship at the University of Kentucky long ago at a time when healthcare coverage was not widely available for many people. Smoking rates were very high. Rural medical care was very poor to non-existent. And, you know, sitting as a young clinician just starting and seeing people 
who never came in with early disease. They always came in with advanced disease. And their support mechanisms were so poor. Uh, you know, certainly left me imprinted with, you know, what we now call the social determinants of health. So I, I think very important. I will, I will say that um, I spent time in the uh, army, um, actually after being uh, drafted as a physician during the Vietnam War days. And I was sent uh, not to Vietnam, but to Panama. And uh, that uh, has had a lasting influence on my professional life because I learned Spanish and continued to use it in New Mexico, but became very interested in health in that part of the world and have had longstanding collaborations and work in uh, Mexico. So I, I think, you know, everywhere as a physician, if you see patients, you wonder why they're, they have what they have and uh, try and understand the origins of disease and what to do about it. So I think each place I've been, I've learned lessons and continue to do so. And certainly 14 years in Baltimore left me very impressed with the problems of uh, urban uh, poverty, um, unemployment, uh, you know, very high rates of crime and drug drug use, a whole nother set of public health problems. Yes. Yeah. Was it, I think it was Mark Twain, and I'm going to slaughter the quote, but it's something like travel is the the greatest way to sort of erode hatred um, because it truly does expose you to different as aspects of humanity and our strength is our weakness. So you work somewhere in an inner city environment where there's poverty, drug use, um, all the social ills, but my goodness, you learn a lot that you can apply to other areas of your practice. So let me, let me ask you, looking back, you've had an illustrious career and hopefully many more years to give yet. What advice would you give to a younger version of you or to a medical student beginning their career in, in healthcare and maybe specifically in the areas that you've worked? Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I mean, I, you know, the delight, of course, of being in academics is that I have the opportunity to work with generation after generation of students and young faculty and seeing them grow up. And I you know, think at this point in my life, the greatest pleasure comes from seeing the successes of those who I've worked with. You know, I, I think my advice is that be you just have to be sentient and aware through your patience of uh, the problems that you're seeing, of learning about them, and thinking about how you can be part of making things better. I mean, I think passion and commitment are really um, important, and I've you know, at that stage of my career now where people uh, who, as you say, perhaps might be younger versions of me say, well, how did you do what you did? And, you know, I, my, my answer is, was, is always to be, you have to be willing to get engaged, you know, pursue the truth and then uh, tell it. And I think, you know, my entree to having a voice that people sometimes listen to has been by doing relevant um science, uh, science that's needed at the moment, and, and being willing to stand up and talk about it. I think that's, it, it's simple in a, in a way, you just have to be willing to, to do it, sometimes outside of your comfort zone. I think that um, I love discussing this with colleagues from all over the world, that looking after patients is, of course, a very humbling um, and wonderful experience, but it's very closely followed in my book with training um, a younger physician 
uh, and you know one I, I remember asking my professor of surgery on my house jobs what what should I aim to be what and he said better than me and he said I'd consider that a success so um, let, let me let me finish with um, a version of a question I love asking people well let's assume that you're out climbing in the Colorado mountains and you come across a little ledge and in the ledge there's a cave and in the cave there's a Sasquatch or Bigfoot and he's a magical Bigfoot and he's not going to eat you. He's going to grant you three wishes to improve the global health. What three things would Dr. Jonathan Samet wish for? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen, but um, let's see. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm more likely to see a rattlesnake or a bear, I guess. But uh, in uh, in any case, I you know let's let's start with the easy uh, easy one. I mean, what what do we have that is still the largest preventable cause of of, of death and uh, disease burden around the world? And that that of course is tobacco, tobacco products. And uh, you know, if there were a magic wand to wave or a wish to this uh, mystical Sasquatch, I think that's where I would start. I, you know, if we really want to improve health generally, and I, I think so much of our advances come from uh, globally and global health, it really has come from elevation of the resources available to people. And then, if you will, the rise of income around the world that's really rescued so many children in sub-Saharan Africa from starvation. Um, and, I, and I think um, elevation of um, the uh, economies is critical. And clearly we now with this conflict in uh, Ukraine and its uh, global consequences, we're going to go backwards. But I, but I think um, raising uh, the level of income, household income for all is really critical. And then I would go to climate change and, and, and climate change, if we do it right, also takes on the problem of air pollution. I mean, they, they go hand in hand. I think they're inseparable. And so uh, my, my three wishes, I, I guess, in no priority order uh, would be the climate change mitigation as well and moving faster than uh, we are. I mean, we all know the dire scenarios that come from the Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The latest ones, um, you know, again, the window for stopping that, you know, several degrees centigrade rise we don't want to exceed gets narrower and narrower. So those are my three um, three wishes. And um, were they granted, I think we would see huge gains in uh, quality of life for everyone and also in life expectancy. Very, very well said. Dr. Jonathan Samet, I'd like to thank you for being with us today and for sharing your valuable experiences. And I, for one, hope that you do meet that Sasquatch. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Very nice to have this opportunity to talk with you and your audience. Delightful. So, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. And more power to Dr. Samet for helping us make the air that we all breathe fresher and safer and Please listen to what he said. I think we can all do our bit. So if you'd like to find out more about this topic or to listen to our other episodes, 
Visit us on the EMJ website for the show notes, and you can also subscribe there. And there's obviously more about our esteemed guest um, uh, in those notes. Please make sure to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show um, if you liked it. If you didn't like it, don't tell anyone, please. And, and listen in next week as we consider to uh, other ways that climate change is, is, is influencing healthcare. So I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening uh, to the EMG Health Podcast. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.